This presentation is from Succeeding in Design 2022, Sydney. Um, so without further ado, I wanted to start off just by talking about the early years of my life, not just my career. And really this was me, pensive little girl, wondering what she was going to do in her life. Really loved science and stuff. <laughs> I wanted to be a biologist at this age probably. And then my older sister, who's about 11 years older, said, oh, if you become a biologist, you have to kill them, you know, dissect animals. Obviously, she was in high school. That was her biology class. That's what she knew. And I was like, ooh, I don't want to hurt animals. Um, but I still love science. So then I thought, I want to be an astronomer. Not an astrologer like you might have seen on, you know, um, one of those dating shows. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but an astronomer. Uh, at the time, that 80s, Carl Sagan, if you know him, he's passed away now, but he was an astronomer, he had a really popular documentary series of astronomy, had the biggest crush on him. Um, all my friends and family gifted me books about astronomy and stars and galaxies, blah, blah, blah. So I, that, that's it, that's what I was going to do. Um, and then in work experience in high school, I did actually go to New South Wales Uni. I spent a week at the astrophysics department, and the guy there, the professor there, was like, are you sure this is something you really want to do? Because we have a lot of kids come through and they, they say they really want to do it, but by the end they do something else. And I was like, no, 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 I really, really want to be an astronomer. Anyway, by the end of the first day, I was like, shit, this is boring. This was something. <laughs> All I was doing was looking at a black screen with white writing, reading bio, and I know what, for some sort of black hole or binary star. I don't even know. But anyway, I was like, okay, this is not for me. Um, as it turned out, I graduated from New South Wales Uni, the same thing I did my work experience at, but it couldn't have been further from the science faculty. I was in the arts faculty, <laughs> and I did English literature and psychology. So very different to what I thought I would do. Um, but at the end of that, uh, when I graduated, I was like, well, what am I qualified to do? <laughs> you know, it wasn't as clear cut as doing a chemical engineering degree or a, a medical degree or whatever, accounting. Um, I did this kind of, you know, humanities degree, and it's like, well, where do I go from here? Um, but at the time, it was kind of that dot-com boom phase, and I was really into dabbling uh, into designing websites um, and uh, working with graphic design programs and creating things. Um, and psychology, I really loved thinking about how people worked. Um, and one of the things I found really interesting when I was way back then doing my psychology degree um, was that we would talk about people as subjects. The subject does this. And we would make assumptions about what the subject thought and felt. <laughs> and at that time, even though I didn't know anything about human design or human interaction, um, I was like, That's, that feels inherently wrong <laughs> that I am making, well, firstly, that I'm calling other human subjects. And secondly, uh, that I'm assuming I know just through observation what they're thinking and feeling. So um, I started, you know, dabbling in web design when we're at a stage where, you know, we're working with this, this pointer doesn't actually point on the screen. Magic. But anyway, it disappears. But that, that top um, section there, you know, that's what the interface is used to look like, right? Just, you know, like like screen, white or black, a bunch of text. And then we moved to something that was a bit more graphical, Netscape, for those of you who remember that. And then from then, we, you know, got the browsers that we're familiar with today. Safari, Google Chrome, Microsoft, 
Uh, not Microsoft Edge though, because that's just information. But anyhow, it's another story. Um, so at the time, I was really driven by just curiosity. I was loving it. I don't know why. I don't know why I love web design. Um, but I was curious about it. I was really interested in how it worked. I enjoyed learning about it. And um, the uh, output of it was that I would write poetry and publish the poetry on the web. And I would have people write to me saying, oh, your poem was great. It really moved me. And I, I felt like a social influencer before social influencers <laughs> were a thing. But I mean, you know, to be fair, over the course of three years, maybe I had five people reach out to me. So my, my reach was not that great. But anyhow, um, early career, given that I had this real interest in, in you know, HTML y stuff, JavaScript y stuff, but of course I had done this vague humanities degree. Um, trying to figure out what I was going to do next was interesting. So uh, this is not really in any particular order, these, these logos, but just about uh, uh, 1998. Um, I started with DoubleClick, actually. They were an online advertising platform. They eventually bought, uh, were bought by Google. Oh, sorry, yes, Google. And um, I started there as a, a little bit of a tech boffin making ads happen, right? So, you know, the HTML and JavaScript to make them work on websites, that was me. Um, and then eventually I kind of changed roles. So if you look on the left in the yellow, I've had a whole, you know, plethora of roles. And they're all related, even though they may not seem to be on the, on the surface. But I started as a web designer, um, kind of worked you know, in the advertising space as more of that technical person, then kind of moved into business analysis when I worked with PwC. Um, I was part of the customer relationship management team. So again, there's that customer experience part of it, but we never really use the word experience at all. Uh, we use customer lifecycle instead. Um, and, you know, then I moved into various roles with Microsoft, um, different software companies like Reckon, they do the um, accounting software, Quicken, if you, if you know that, um, Expedia and Hotel Club, so online travel e-commerce, um, and then eventually back into consulting uh, with Empire and the customer experience company. Um, but between those sort of corporate bookends, I spent about 10 years in academia. Um, after my master's degree, um, I um, started thinking that I probably wanted to move out of corporate into academia because it seemed so full of fresh ideas. And it was so, in my mind, it was so egalitarian and there was no ego. <laughs> Everyone was just there for the love of knowledge. And I thought, wow, what a utopia. God, corporate. I'm going to move to academia because that's where it's at. Um, obviously, starting as a PhD student then, um, everything I'd done in the previous uh, you know, 10, 12 years meant nothing. I was back to zero and I had to uh, kind of learn that academia is just as cutthroat <laughs> as corporate. But it was a really interesting time. And at that time, I started to get more aware of all these terms you know, usability, user experience, interaction design, customer experience, human-computer interaction, HCD, all of these terms. And I know that um, pretty much there is no consensus, I think, within uh, the experience design community on, you know, what word should be the key word or the lead word 
I mean, there are obviously differences between something like human-centered design, which is more kind of, a, of an umbrella term, holistic, versus something like interaction design, uh, which is a bit more focused and narrow. But overall, it's very easy to confuse um, these terms with one another, especially if you're not someone who's sitting in this room, right? Especially if you're, you know, maybe a COO or you're a um, sales or account manager and you've heard these buzzwords. You've heard, oh, design thinking, oh, God, everyone's doing it. We better do it too. Um, or, you know, user experience, oh, that's, that's where it's at. Customer experience, that's where it's at. We've got to do that. Don't know what it means, but, you know. And so we get sometimes, I think, into a tricky position as practitioners because we're presenting to people who either know nothing about what we do, they know a little about what we do, and sometimes they know a lot, but very rarely. And um, I think what I've, I've personally witnessed is that we fall into a trap of just echoing some of the buzzwords and the fluffy terms back at the client. And I think what that does to our practice is it dilutes the value that we bring because it suddenly seems like everyone's doing design thinking, it's just a bunch of post-it notes on the wall or now in the time of COVID on a Miro board, um, and that's it. But there's so much more to it. And it's an interesting kind of dichotomy because we have all this interest in what we do. We have so many graduates wanting to move into UX. We have so many people want to do it, wanting to do a career change and move into UX. Um, so, you know, on the surface, it seems like, wow, everyone's doing this. Everyone knows it. It's just, you know, where it's at. But when we speak to clients, they're oftentimes unsure of what value we can bring at all. Why would you even bother? And so I, I think that's a really interesting tension that I haven't been able to figure out. So hopefully we can discuss that and see with all the brains in the room um, how we think we might be able to address that. But anyway, um, when I did my, um, I'll just go back a bit. When I did my master's, which then led me to think, oh, I really like this academic thing. I might do a PhD. I was surrounded by um, other students who were either anthropologists or programmers or account managers. Um, so, you know, any, anywhere from social sciences to a very technical people. We came from a whole bunch of different areas. It was really multidisciplinary. And at that time, I thought, oh, finally, I've found my people, right? So after my bachelor's, I was like, I don't know what I'm going to do. I have no real qualification. <laughs> I can speak English, but that's great. Um, but then when I did my master's in IT and interaction design, I was like, oh, this is it. This is my ragtag bunch of, of people. Um, and so that's kind of one of the things I love about this industry that we've, I think so many of us have come from all these disparate um, careers and, and uh, backgrounds, and it's, it's very exciting. All right, so even though that was all great and I was in love with my new people, <laughs> um, when I went out to actually start practicing human-centered design proper, as I had been, you know, taught in my research degree, um, I started to come across, uh, at the time, some surprising things. And now I realize that just like, yeah, whatever, it's just another day. But when I was working, I, I kind of have always, even prior to, you know, the last 10 years, I've always kind of been in a role where I've bridged this gap between technology and the marketing teams. So I've always kind of felt like I have been a bit of a translator between the two teams. And that kind of felt like a natural thing for someone who was 
interested in human experience. Um, but I was coming across instances um, in the workplace where there's lots of black and white thinking. And instead of embracing that, I would be almost kind of laughed at <laughs> or questioned about it. You know, there would be team meetings about how we were going to approach a solution and the tech people would be like, do we do this or this binary thinking? And I'd be like, well, <laughs> it depends. And that would always be the sort of response I would give because it does depend. Like, you know, there was always a lot of gray that I could see in these situations. And so after a while, I got a reputation <laughs> for like, just not giving a clear answer. Like, we need to do something. Just make it, make a decision, A or B. Um, and that was really quite uh, confronting to me because I was like, how do these people not see? And then similarly, you know, working with solution architects, um, I've had quite a few instances where, um, you know, I've, I've worked with them on a kind of big enterprise-wide sort of transformation or maybe it's a much smaller piece where we're just customising a, you know, off-the-shelf product and, um, you know, they'll, they'll kind of engage me. To, to help with their high-level solution designs. And I will ask, that's great, you know, functionality this and blah, 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 integration that, that's fine. Who's your user? <laughs> and they'll be like, I don't know. <laughs> and that to me was like, what? Really? And it's still, it's so prevalent. I'm not saying all of these, you know, IT practitioners um, operate in that way, but it's still so prevalent, which is surprising because what we do, it's not new. It's not 10 years, it's not 20 years. In fact, it's much longer than that, that this way of thinking about, you know, bridging the gap between technology design and how humans think, humans think it's been around since, you know, 1969 um, with, you know, um, design thinking um, and, and Simon Herbert. So um, I'll, I'll talk a bit, bit about that in a second. Um, but yeah, so I've given you the two examples, black and white thinking and high-level solution design but there were many others. These are all pseudonyms, by the way. <laughs> so lots of different interactions with um, people in the corporate realm, clients, uh, varying degrees of seniority, all of them kind of questioning what I assumed was pretty obvious, pretty, pretty obvious stuff. So the sad reality is still um, that, you know, I think everyone in this room understands that, that UX is all of these things and more probably. We've got a bit of a cutout here, so definitely more. Um, but typically, or often, we are still, you know, sort of regarded as just, just, I have that in inverted commas, you know, graphic designers or interface designer, visual design. Something or someone who comes in almost at the end of a project, makes it pretty and goes away. Uh, but the reality is we really want to get involved earlier um, in a number of ways, using a number of different research methods and tools, um, and then you know, prototyping with a number of different tools as well, and then hopefully saving the client a lot of money in wasted effort. And I think we all know that, right? Preaching to the choir here. Um, but in the last 10 years, um, as I said, I'm, you know, I'm surprised by the fact that what we've been doing for so long is still a surprise to people. Now, this video, if we have the time to run it, um, is by Lucy Suchman. So Lucy Suchman, I've, I've decided to call out um, from the history of uh, human-computer interaction because A, she's a woman, and A, she was really instrumental in getting software engineers, male or female, software engineers, to understand that just because technology worked <laughs> in terms of 
their uh, conceptual model, it didn't necessarily work for end users. So it didn't necessarily meet the end user's mental model. Um, so in order to play, I just might need Annabelle. No, that's not going to work. Or I might go to the, um, yeah, or I might just go to the laptop. So this is just a bit of a funny interaction. And, you know, black and white shows that we've been around for a long time. <laughs> can't, can't lie about that. Um, so they're just trying to make photocopies. This is like one of the first photocopiers ever. These guys are all PhD um, qualified. We don't really need sound. It's all there. So these are very smart guys trying to do a very simple thing. Two-sided photocopier. There we go. So I think we really take for granted how easy it is to use photocopiers these days. Because uh, in 1977, very much built from the point of view of, you know, the, the software engineer, the developer, um, product designer. I don't think that role actually existed back then. But, uh, <laughs> you know, it works. Like if you just do X, Y, Z, you know, to the square root of blah, it'll work. That's obvious. But it's not obvious. And obviously this is why we all have um, a role. No worries, thank you. Alrighty, so just a little bit of that history. So as I mentioned, Herbert Simon, um, in 1969, he was a you know, software engineer, philosopher, educator, um, and he actually talked about design thinking for the first time, 1969. Um, he also talked about user research and rapid ideation. These are all things we do. Um, and maybe some of us, or definitely many of our clients, thought that this was just something that came about in the 90s. Um, but we've definitely been doing it for much longer than that. And so in the 70s, there was a sort of um, uh, a concurrent movement, I suppose, um, in Scandinavia. They're all very egalitarian there. And as part of um, com computer-supported uh, collaborative work, uh, cooperative work, um, they did lots of um, studies into, participatory uh, design researchers did lots of studies into, okay, there's this technology now that we can use to make work more efficient, but it doesn't seem fair on the existing workers. We're going to be imposing all these technologies and new methods and processes uh, for how they should work, but that doesn't seem fair. So we need to get those users in. We need to ask them about their experience and what they expect um, and have them co-design with us. So that was happening in the 70s with PD. Um, and then in the 80s, we've got, you know, design thinking um, being sort of made more popular through Stanford University um, as a sort of creative problem-solving um, mechanism. Uh, so that's, that's where your post-it notes come from. Um, and then Lucy Suchman, uh, the, the clip I just uh, showed you was by Lucy Suchman and her research into um, working with Xerox machines and Xerox developers. Um, checking out mental models and trying to understand why at that time the way computers um, said things or, or computers set out uh, the way things should work did not match the way in which humans understood uh, things should work. And also she looked at the way in which there was a dialogue between machine and human and where that might be failing. So really important piece of work. And the interesting thing about Lucy is that She's an anthropologist, right? She's not um, necessarily a software engineer or programmer. In, in fact, now she is a professor at Lancaster University in the US. Um, she's 
head of anthropology, science and technology. So there's definitely a fusion now that we're seeing, and that's thanks to things like human-computer interaction, which happened you know, in the early, uh, sorry, the late 60s, early 70s. Um, so it goes on and on. Design thinking made um, famous by IDEO, um, then Stanford D School by the other co-founder of IDEO. That's in the kind of late or early 2000s. Um, then we have suddenly human-computer interaction or user experience um, being standardized, right? How much more validity can we get than being part of the international standardization? So at the early stages, we were kind of known, our field was known as ergonomics of human system interaction. Now um, we're more likely to be called human computer interaction um, uh, practitioners. So I, I share this because I, I got a thrill by seeing this when I kind of did the background to it because I was like, well, this, I am valid. <laughs> when I go into a company, I'm talking to a bunch of tech people or a bunch of you know, finance people, and they you know, wonder, well, why, why am I even listening to you? You're just you know, fluffy marketing, whatever, uh, people, empathy, whatever. <laughs> I, I now, you know, I've started to build up an arsenal of facts around, well, yes, this is why it's valid. This is why we need to do this kind of work. Um, and it's interesting because, you know, this, you know, if we look at the 1969 start date, this came way before Agile, came way before DSDM. You know, and yet I found when I work um, within IT projects, everyone's just like, oh, Agile this and DSDM. Do you know in the DSDM model, there is um, a, a kind of, there are roles, right? They have everything frameworked and there are roles for business analysts program manager, project manager, um, there's nowhere, nowhere to be seen. There's even, I think, oh, it could be lying about this, so I won't say that, but there's, there's no role for a human-centered design practitioner or UX practitioner, um, which is, you know, very, very disappointing. But anyhow, it's just one of the many frameworks. So to try and explain the validity of my existence as a UX practitioner over the last 10 years, I have used various means and I'd love to brainstorm more with you because I don't think any of them has particularly been foolproof or um, worked 100% if even 10%. So many of you probably have seen this, it's a pretty classic photo of you know we design what we think the user wants but the user actually needs to do something else. Now this is a park but obviously applies to technology as well. So I've tried to use this as a little introductory, you know, there you go, guys, this is what we're about. And this is why it's important when, you know, I present to some people who um, are dubious about the value of um, taking on experience as part of a project. And I've also tried to validate my existence again by saying design and thinking is not a fad. It's been around since the 70s. You know, you're going to save lots of money. There are all these, you know, um, uh, you know, uh, research papers uh, and stats around how um, you know companies save money if they actually incorporate design thinking um, and think about and empathize with their users so I've, I've tried talking about it in that sense uh, I've tried showing them little graphics you know we you know let's break it up into words that maybe you know different teams will find a little more um, 
uh, palatable than talking about, you know, um, feedback and usability and um, accelerators and things like that if we're going to look at Nielsen Norman's heuristics. So let's talk about desirability and viability and feasibility. These are very businessy marketing words. Surely that will surely that will draw them in and convince them. And we have a little sweet spot in the middle. Um, doesn't always work. Um, and you know, try to like appeal to the people who are really budget conscious. And we say, hey, Frank Lloyd Wright, you know that really famous architect? Yeah, he's a designer too. That's what I am, sort of. Um, he said, you know, actually try to, you know, figure out what's happening at the design phase, do all your modifications then, and you save money because once you start to build, you don't have to um, change as much, if anything at all. Uh, you know, saving about 10, 10 times effort, money, resources. Uh, so sometimes I, I use this, doesn't always work. Sometimes I try to show the difference between what I think the difference is between a human-centered design specialist in orange and more of a traditional business analyst. And I'm, I'm sure many of you have maybe had to work alongside business analysts or have had um, you know, interesting dealings with business analysts and trying to figure out how to <laughs> collaborate <laughs> in a sensible way. Um, so I've tried to kind of break it down in this way. You know, HCD, we focus on people. Business is still there. Technology is still there. But often what I, I get back as a response when I say, we focus on people, is that, well, we just we can't just build whatever people want. <laughs> Sometimes it's not possible. Sometimes it's too expensive. It's like, yes, we know that. We're not always going to give the user what they want, you know, just cut lunch. But um, when I talk about business analysts, I try to say, look, they, they just flip it. Like, we do very similar things. You know, we use very similar tools and methods. But I guess a perspective in which we uh, come into a problem space is a little bit different. So I try to explain it that way, too. And of course, I'm sure some of you are having like some triggering episodes now because <laughs> you've probably seen Double Diamond a million times. Um, but I try to use this as well, you know, trying to say, you know, we discover, we do this discovery phase and we drill into the definition and then we use these different sorts of, um, oops, sorry, we use these different sorts of methods and tools. And some of them are a little bit like you might, you know, recognize working with business um, analysts. So it's not that scary. <laughs> we do use stuff that you're familiar with, um, but sometimes that doesn't work. So I try to validate, again, my existence by saying, Google does it. Look at this. Google does it. This is what they do. And IDEO does it. Oh, my God. And it's all about iterative design. And look, this is a service design thinking process. And there's this whole book about it and a whole framework. And uh, basically, sometimes I give up and just, you know, I'm sure you've all seen this image too try to explain in, in cartoon form uh, why we do what we do, right? You know, at the end of the day, the, the user just wants this. But somehow along the way, with business objectives and teams with their own KPIs and their own agendas, go through a multitude of phases. Now, you know, why would we want to deliver something like this when at the end of the day we want to deliver that? And, you know, obviously, something like human-centered design, user research, um, can help us get here much quickly, much, much more quickly um, than going through the whole development phase and through A, B, C, D, etc. So again, nothing new, just iterative design. And we don't have to, you know, completely sabotage or take over a, an IT project. You know, different phases of projects 
uh, will require different tools. That's what I try to, you know, tell IT teams. Sometimes there's a little bit of anxiety I feel from IT teams going, who are you to come in and tell me what I need to design now? Um, and uh, some concern that we're trying to take over or to undermine uh, the quality of the work, which is not what we're doing at all. Um, so try to use slides like this to explain that UX doesn't have to be, you know, across a whole project. You can pick and choose, much like we did here. So this is an example of a, a big enterprise-wide transformation I did in the past. And this was what I got from the, the team. It was a multidisciplinary team, but driven by the IT department. And so there's all this IT, 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 subject matter expert in the learning and teaching space. There's a little bit of HCD discovery that comes in here, and then that's it, really. <laughs> so we tried to say, hey, look at all these other <laughs> ways in which we could get involved, all these colored boxes. Um, so we're not going to change the IT process, but we're going to try and educate, in a way, not to be patronizing, but we're trying to show there are so many other opportunities to, to collaborate with HCD. Um, and none of it really is about changing what IT are doing or removing or drastically, you know, upsetting the existing flow. It's just an opportunity to have richer understandings before we, we start developing or purchasing products off the shelf. So I'm going to end with um, just a little bit of an a, um, overview of one of the papers I wrote during my um, research degree at UTS. And the reason I'm sharing this is because it was a paper which I thought was a waste of time, to be honest. My, my supervisor, though, said, oh, you have no idea. Literature reviews are really important. Um, we're going to get lots of citations. And I just thought, oh, come on, this is all obvious stuff. So what we ended up doing was looking at a lot of different technology design publications um, and looking at the myths that existed about older adults. So I was an, on an Australian Research Council project at the time, and the the remit was to look at how technology could support older adults into um, old age and maintain well-being, whether that was spiritual, physical, or emotional, etc. Um, so we did the review, and we saw that so many of our current um, publications regarding technology, so so many of our peers, were still thinking that all older people are the same. They're all isolated and lonely. They're all depressed. They're all a burden on society. They're all dying. They're chronically ill. And by older people, I should say, and it's scary for me because I'm, <laughs> I'm reaching this mark, um, 55 years is often the age used for studies that look at older adults, right? But obviously, 55 to 95, for example, you've got four decades there. There's huge diversity within that group. Um, so you can't just say everyone who's over 55 is chronically ill. Essentially, that's what these papers are saying. And they're incapable of learning new systems. They just don't get it. And they can't use technology anyway, so why bother? Um, so what we realized through the literature review and the, and the studies that we ran was obviously older adults are diverse. I mean, I think you could probably remove the word older in this reality column and you just cut to the chase, right? People are diverse. You know, people do have meaningful relationships. It doesn't matter whether they're older or not. Um, they can definitely contribute to society. You know, it's a very common thing, especially in some cultures, that the um, older adults, you know, 
take care of babysitting, they take care of financial support um, for their children and, and grandchildren. Um, many older adults will actually say that their self-rated um, self uh, sense of well-being is higher than it's ever been. So medically, they might have heart issues and diabetes and you know arthritis, but they actually rate their sense of well-being much higher than they ever have. Um, so they do manage their uh, age-related illnesses and they also typically report, um, you know, we've, we've seen this in longitudinal studies, that they typically report feeling better than ever. Um, and often older adults do have the capacity, but they don't really need to. Like, what's the return on investment? Like, I'm currently, you know, doing this one thing in a certain way. It's always worked for me. Why the hell would I spend X amount of money, X amount of time learning a new thing? It's probably going to get out of fashion within a year. It's going to stick to do, do what I do, right? So that's often the thing that we see. It's not about being incapable. It's just about being reluctant or not interested in um, learning new things. And um, finally, what we found that, uh, you know, in terms of unable to use technology, a lot of the studies that we saw um, were kind of biased in some way. So there's one example, I think it was at the time Xbox was coming out, and there was video footage of a grandma and her grandchild. And the grandchild was like, this is what you do, blah, 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 shoot, shoot, shoot. And the grandma was like, oh, let's have a go. Oh, I've missed that. Oh, you're so good. Oh, you're so much better than me. Oh. And then the kid goes out of the room and the grandma's like, yeah. Pew, 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 pew. And that is about, obviously, you know, grandma just wants to make the little kid feel great and accomplished and supported, you know. But the grandma, it's not about her not being able to use the technology. She can. So we just have to be careful how we interpret some of these results. So this paper was trying to really bring that to the fore. And we have used it um, as part of some of the teaching material at UTS uh, with our interaction design students in the bachelors or the masters. And some students are like, oh, duh, this is obvious. Why is the whole paper about it? But that's the thing. Some of this stuff is obvious, especially if you're particularly empathic or you have lived, you have lived experience that you know, gets you closer to real older adults. Um, or you've been trained to think in more of a you know, human-centered design way, of course, this is pretty obvious stuff. But the sad reality is um, so many practitioners, uh, whether they're grads or even more seasoned practitioners who are responsible for creating technologies that impact our lives, still think very much in terms of these myths and these biases. And it's not just about older adults. It can be about you know, any kind of group. So um, my final point is that for me, um, what success looks like in this, this sort of practice in this space as I've, I've witnessed over the last, you know, 22 plus years is that, you know, at the crux of it for me, it's not a, assuming that other people know what I know. Because sometimes I'm like embarrassed to say the things I say. It's like, ugh, it's so obvious. Like, it seems like I'm just filling air. But it's not always the case. Um, some people are really surprised by some of the things and the insights I um, share. Um, so the flip side of that is being open, you know, to learn what others know. So just because I might know stuff that seems very obvious to me, doesn't mean I know everything. So always keeping that curious um, mentality. Um, and then absolutely empathy. I mean, there's no place for arrogance. And when I run a, you know, co-design workshop and, you know, we all know that we use techniques 
like, um, you know, introducing ourselves but using, you know, say a card with an image that we then have to overlay our role and experience onto because then it's an equaliser. It doesn't matter whether you're C-level executive or first-year uni student, you all have to do this relatively silly activity. You all have to think in a similar creative way. We're getting you out of your comfort zone. And then it doesn't matter if you've had 30 years of business experience or you've just entered university. You are all on that level playing field. So no place for arrogance in co-design and UX. Um, and I really think, just coming back to my earlier point about trying not to dilute the value of what we do by just falling into saying things like, we're trying to make extraordinary experiences delightful and seamless. Like those, those are great words, but they're very subjective. They mean nothing. And I think they do more damage than good um, to our reputation as uh, you know, serious, um, serious practitioners. So that's, that's it from me. And I'd love to open the floor, to have a bit of a chat. Um, and I know there are some questions perhaps, but I'd like to leave you all with this question. So in terms of communicating the benefits of UX, how do you think we can reach 